And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If there is one thing that I've learned after many years of leading pilgrimages and traveling overseas, it's that Americans, of all people, have a tendency to stand out from the crowd. Uh, Even in a congested airport or a busy tourist site, I can invariably pick out those travelers who are from the United States. It's the way we dress. It's the way we talk. Often it's the way that we interact with other people that reveals our true country of origin. Some years ago, I was leading a pilgrimage of about 50 people in the footsteps of St. Paul. We were visiting the ancient city of Thessaloniki, which is in northeastern Greece. I was on my way down to dinner in the hotel restaurant, and a woman came up to me, a member of our group, very upset. It seems that her husband had gone out in search of a camera battery and had been missing for over three hours. She had been desperately trying to reach him on his cell phone, but it was to no avail. Well, Thessaloniki, or Salonika as it's sometimes called, is a large city. In fact, it's the second largest city in all of Greece. It has a population of over a million people. And at that particular point in time, there had been a huge influx of people from Eastern Europe, a large number of gypsies, and the crime rate in the city had skyrocketed. I had strictly warned everyone that they should not go out by themselves. And so when I heard that this man had been missing for over three hours, this was not typical behavior, I started off for the concierge to put in a call to the police. In fact, I had just been handed the receiver by the desk clerk when I noticed the missing man stumbling through the front door of the hotel. He looked terrible. His shirt was all torn, his knees were scraped up and bleeding, and his hair was a tousled mess. I ran up to him, I said, Peter, where have you been, and what happened to you? He said, oh, you'll never believe it. He said, I was mugged. He said, I went out in search of a camera battery. I saw a woman standing on the street. I asked her if she might be able to help me if she spoke English. She motioned for me to follow her, so I did for about two blocks until she suddenly turned a corner, and as she did, she dropped her pocketbook. I bent down to help her pick it up, and before I knew it, a young man had jumped on my back, forced me to the ground, and taken my wallet out of my back pocket. He said, and while I was trying to fight him off, The young woman who was supposed to be helping me, she stole my camera. He said, they both got away, and it's taken me all this time just to find my way back to the hotel. Are you hurt, I asked. No, he said, I'm a little battered and bruised. The only thing that's really hurt, though, is my pride. I just can't understand why they chose me. I I can't understand why. Of all the people out there on the street, I was the target. Now, this, of course, was a very serious situation, and as the leader, I was greatly relieved that this man was not hurt. But I have to be honest with you. When he said those words, when he said, I just cannot understand why I was the mark, I was the target, I almost burst out laughing. Because while it was not apparent to him, it was certainly apparent to everyone else in the group why he was the target. Peter was six feet, four inches tall, and thin as a rail. 
He was wearing a white polo shirt, madras shorts, white socks that came up to his knees, electric blue tennis shoes, he had a camera around his neck, and he was sporting a bucket hat that said, Daw Taw Island, South Carolina. <laughs> the only thing that was missing from his ensemble was a sign that said, Mug Me First. <laughs> of course he was the target. He was the target because he stood out from the crowd. Well, standing out from the crowd can be both a positive and a negative thing. In the case of my friend Peter, it was a very dangerous thing, because it did. It made him a mark for those with malicious intent. And yet Jesus here in today's gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 5 makes it very clear, standing out from the crowd is exactly what we Christians are expected to do. You may have noticed from the cover of this morning's bulletin that today is All Saints Sunday. That day in the church calendar when we honor all the saints, that is to say all those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. According to the New Testament, a saint is not someone who has done great things or achieved great things and thereby been awarded this special status reserved only for a select few. No. A saint is anyone at all who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In fact, in the New Testament, that word saint and the word Christian are often used interchangeably. Which means that if you are a Christian this morning, guess what? You are also a saint. You are St. Brian, St. Justin, St. William, and so forth. That song we sang just a moment ago put it well. They live not only in ages past, there are hundreds of thousands still. The world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school or in lanes or at sea, in church or in trains or in shops or at tea. But the saints of God are just folk like me, and I mean to be one too. Simply put, a saint is a Christian. And a Christian is a man or a woman who by their demeanor, by their action, by the way they interact with other people, reveal to the world that their true citizenship resides not here on earth, but in heaven. And this, you see, is why the Beatitudes are always the assigned reading for All Saints Sunday. It's because in this most famous section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets forth the distinguishing marks of the truly outstanding person. The characteristics of those who are the true saints of God. And he mentions a number of things. In verse 3, Jesus says the first mark of the truly outstanding person, the true saint, is a poverty of spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it should be clear to everyone that Jesus is not talking here about physical poverty. Jesus certainly had a heart for the downcast and the downtrodden of his day, but Jesus would never have said that poverty in and of itself is a good or blessed thing. Jesus would have been the first person to condemn such things as squalor, social exploitation, slums, starvation, all the things that are associated with physical poverty. Jesus is talking in spiritual terms. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Now, what does that mean? To be poor in spirit, to have a poverty of spirit. Well, it's the Lord Himself who gives us the answer in one of His parables. He said, on one occasion, two men went up to the temple to pray. The first was a Pharisee, and the second was a publican or a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee, who was the equivalent of a clergyman today, stood up and prayed thus, Oh, God, I am so thankful that I am not like other men. I'm not an adulterer or an extortioner or a liar. And most of all, God, I thank you that I am not like that miserable tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I tithe on everything I get. But the other man, Jesus said, that publican, the tax collector, he stood off at the back of the crowd, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He simply beat his breast and cried out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus asked the audience this question. He said, which man do you think went down to his house justified in the sight of God? That is to say, in a right relationship with the Lord. It wasn't that Pharisee with his long list of accomplishments. Instead, it was that miserable, wretched tax collector. And do you know why? Because he alone felt his need for God. He alone felt his need for God's mercy. And that, my friends, is what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge your absolute spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord. D.A. Carson, who is a very good New Testament scholar, put it this way. He said, to be poor in spirit is not to lack courage, but to acknowledge our deep spiritual bankruptcy. The kingdom of God is not given on the basis of race, earned merits, military zeal, or the prowess of zealots. The kingdom of heaven is given to the wretched, the despised publicans, the prostitutes, those who are so poor, they know they can offer nothing, and they do not even try. Instead, they merely cry for mercy, and they alone are heard. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that you have absolutely nothing to offer to God that He should accept you. Incidentally, this is the reason why during normal times when we come forward to receive Holy Communion, we come forward in the posture of beggars. We come forward on bended knee with upturned palms because regardless of how we may appear to other people, this is how we appear to God as nothing but spiritual paupers. This is the first of the Beatitudes because it is the foundational Beatitude. It's only by recognizing your spiritual poverty that you can hope to become a child of God. And Jesus said it is the first mark of a truly outstanding person. It is the first characteristic of a saint. Now the second mark or characteristic is like unto it. In verse 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now we need to ask, mourn for what? 
There are many things in this life over which we might grieve, over which we might mourn. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, given the fact that the first beatitude had to do with a person's spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, it only stands to reason then that this second beatitude has to do with mourning for sin. Jesus is saying that the true saint is not simply someone who acknowledges that they're a sinner in need of God's salvation. A true saint is also someone who is sorry for their sin. This is why when we say the confession, we say we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Because it's one thing you see to acknowledge, it's quite another thing to actually bewail. I've sometimes said that the child who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may be sorry that he got caught. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's sorry that he did it. In fact, given the opportunity, he might try it again. No, Jesus says to truly be sorry, to mourn for our sin, is to be sorry enough to quit. Think of it this way. When a person is actually in mourning, genuine mourning, deep mourning, whether that be for the loss of a loved one or the loss of their health, generally two things follow. The first thing that follows is a deep sense of shock. Shock at the bad news. It's, it's a sense of shock that, that senses that the whole world has been knocked off kilter, that your whole life has been knocked off its access, and that you now have to dwell in this new and unhappy reality. And the second thing that generally happens after that initial shock is that a deep sense of sorrow descends upon a person. Sometimes that sorrow is so great that even the most mundane tasks become difficult to do. The heart is just so weighed down. Well, Jesus says when the Holy Spirit begins to really work in the life of a man or a woman to bring them to a realization of their deep spiritual poverty before the Lord, both of those things happen. The first thing that happens is there is a sense of shock, mortification at what you've done, at your sin. And the second thing is that there is a deep and abiding sorrow for it. And yet, and yet Jesus says, for those who are truly sorry, for those who mourn for their sin, there is comfort. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that comfort, he says, comes from the gospel. Every Advent season, and incidentally, Advent is just around the corner, but every Advent season, we have a reading from Isaiah 40. That passage says, Comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And why? Because the prophet says, Her warfare is ended. Her iniquities have been pardoned. Well, that's it. To be a saint, Jesus said, is not to be a perfect person. It is to be someone who acknowledges and bewails your manifold sins and wickedness, and yet you are comforted by the hope of the gospel. You are comforted by the knowledge that by His death upon the cross, Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sin. He has ended your warfare with God. He has pardoned your iniquities. 
It's worth noting that these first two Beatitudes, they echo the language of Isaiah 61, which says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to comfort those who mourn. You may recall that that was the very text that Jesus chose for His first sermon in the synagogue in Nazareth. We're told that he went into the synagogue that day. The attendant handed him the scroll. He could choose any passage that he wanted. And he unrolled it to that particular passage. And he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I have been anointed to preach good news to the poor and to comfort those who mourn. And that is exactly what we see him doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. So a poverty of spirit, a mourning for our sins, these are the first two marks of a saint. Here's the third. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. When you think of meekness, what springs to mind? When you think of a meek person, what do you imagine? I think for many people, when they think of meekness, they think of somebody who is weak, timid, maybe even cowardly. Those of you who are of a certain generation may remember that old comic strip character from the 1950s, Casper Milktoast. He was the man that always spoke softly, but then got hit with a big stick. Well, I think when we think of meekness, that's what we think of, timidity, cowardice. But it's important to understand that when the Bible speaks of meekness, it doesn't mean that at all. Moses, for example, was described as one of the meekest men on the face of the earth. But Moses was many things, but timid, cowardly, he was not. Moses had to go into the presence of the most powerful monarch of his day and demand that he let God's people go. And then for the next 40 years, Moses had to lead God's people during those difficult years in the wilderness. Now, when the New Testament speaks of meekness. It means something more akin to gentleness, kindness. A meek person is a gentle man, a gentle woman. They are a kind person. They are a person who feels no need to defend themselves. They trust in the Lord for their vindication. Now, all of the Beatitudes that Jesus mentions here in Matthew chapter 5 are lifted out of the Old Testament. They're all Old Testament themes. But that is especially true with this third Beatitude, meekness. This is actually a direct quotation from the Old Testament, from Psalm 37, which says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. But the important thing about Psalm 37 is that it tells us what the meek person is like. It says, the meek do not fret because of evil men. They trust in the Lord and do good. They delight in the Lord and they refrain from anger. A meek person is not a weak person. A meek person is someone who trusts in the Lord with all their heart and leans not on their own understanding. Now, unfortunately, this morning, we do not have the time to go through all of these Beatitudes. There are eight of them in total. So I would encourage you to go home and read them for yourself, these marks of the true saint, and examine your own life. 
But I do want to give you just one more, and then I'll wrap this up. In verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to close with this beatitude because there is a sense in which it is the summation of everything that's gone before. Jesus is saying, if you are the kind of person, and by the way, the Beatitudes are descriptive, not prescriptive. But if you are the kind of person who acknowledges your poverty of spirit, if you are the kind of person who mourns for your sin and lives meekly because of it, then Jesus said, you will be the kind of man or woman who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. You'll long for it. You'll desire it. You'll seek after it. This language of hungering and thirsting has a rich and textured history in the Bible. In Psalm 107, we read, The hungry and the thirsty cry out to the Lord, and He satisfies them with good things. Jesus said, Whoever comes to Me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? When you look at this world of ours, with all of its problems, all of its wickedness, its ways of inventing evil, when you look at all the sorrow and the shame and the pain and the culture around you, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you long for reform, for reformation, for renewal in the church and in your own life and in the lives of others? Jesus said, this is what it means to be a saint. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a child of God. Now, it's not hard to see why. If a person's life is characterized by these things, if we are living like this, it's not hard to see why it is that you will stand out from the crowd. It's because to live like this, my friends is to be countercultural. It's not just to be different. It's not just to be odd. It is to be otherworldly. It is to show the world that your true citizenship does not reside here. It resides in heaven. Just try and imagine how different the Beatitudes would be if we wrote them according to the culture around us. We would never say, blessed are the poor in spirit. We say, blessed are the confident, the assertive. We would never say, blessed are those who mourn. We'd say, blessed are those who have a good time. We would never say, blessed are the meek. We'd say, blessed are those who watch out for number one, because that's the only thing that matters. If you live... Like the person described here in these Beatitudes, my friend, you will stand out from the crowd. You will be different. And you will be persecuted. For if there's one thing that the world hates, it is nonconformity. It always wants to push you into its mold. If you live as a saint, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, like my friend Peter, you will be a mark. You will be a target. 
that is why Jesus, in the very last of the Beatitudes, offers this word of comfort. He said, little children, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. My friends, they live not only in ages past. There are hundreds of thousands still. The world is bright with the joyous saints who love to do Jesus' will. You can meet them in school or in lanes or at sea. In church or in trains or in shops or at tea. But the saints of God are just folk like me. And I mean to be one too. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise on this All Saints Sunday. For those who were lights in their several generations, we thank you for the saints who mourn their sin, who acknowledge their spiritual poverty, who live meekly and who hunger and thirst like parched men and women in a dry land for righteousness. Grant us the grace to live like this, to stand out from the crowd and to rejoice in persecution knowing that our reward is great in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name.